The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to HealthEd's Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Saturday, the 19th of March. Professor Robert Boy explains the recent COVID developments that are crucial to your practice. He discusses the practical implications of the BA2 spike, such as reactivating mask requirements and other measures, and explains Evo Shield the first pre-exposure prophylactic agent for COVID, which was recently approved for use in Australia. My name is Professor Robert Boy. I'm a professor at the University of Sydney in an honorary capacity in infectious diseases, child and adolescent health, uh, vaccinology and epidemiology. My topic today is COVID-19. I particularly want to use the alliteration of variants, antivirals, vaccines and vaccine hesitancy. I want to pay credit to some colleagues at the Children's Hospital Westmead with whom I work, uh, Associate Professors Phil Britton and Nicholas Wood, and I want to get straight into talking to you. I really want to talk about what is current and what is perhaps going to happen in the near future. You've heard a lot about COVID, so you know a lot, so I want to give you stuff that's really up to the minute if I possibly can, and that is practical to your daily uh, uh, existence. The kind of topics I want to cover include long COVID, uh, emergencies briefly, uh, clinical trial data from trials of vaccines and antivirals, some of the side effects like uh, myocarditis, some of the issues like hesitancy, some of the new drugs. Uh, Particularly, I want to talk about a prophylactic drug uh, for pre-exposure called Evusheld. I'll come to that. And uh, a few mentions of whether we should have vaccination for preschool, which we don't yet have, uh, whether we should uh, be travelling overseas already. Some people are going to Bali. And um, whether we are likely to have twindemics with flu or RSV or other viral or other bacterial infections becoming much commoner. So medical emergencies, I've just attended a lecture by Zoom from the um, chief health officer, the chief medical officer of the UK, and his name is Chris Whitty, and he made some very erudite observations, and I'm going to summarise them in one minute. Medical emergencies, whether they're floods or they're uh, a medical pandemic, are rare, but somewhere in the world they're happening all the time. They require many real actors Uh, doctors, public health officials, uh, other people to respond to them. And not just in the movies where you can see Don't Look Up or you can see Contagion, uh, movies that uh, stylise and idealise, not just a few brave film actors, many thousands like yourselves have been crucial to the management of COVID. So good science is necessary to do this well. And the prediction of risk is really difficult. Because it has low sensitivity, we hard to find it hard to find, and low specificity, we get it wrong. And there are lots of doomsayers, in, including in public health, and some of you might point to some modellers always over-predicting COVID, or you might, predict, you might look at weather forecasters. Early warning, however, is possible, and it can guide our response. There are golden hours and golden days in which we can take measures to do better. Famines are predictable. They're happening all the time. 
Uh, floods are predictable too, but only within days. Uh, when and where uh, are predictable. Um, what and where, but not when, is applicable to earthquakes. So when might be in a day, a month or a century. And what about infectious diseases? Well, we don't know where or when or how big flu pandemics are coming. We know they are coming. But even worse, the new, flu coro flu, uh, the new co novel corona pandemic, we didn't know what, where, when or how. So it's been a huge challenge. So science can predict where with floods, but it's hard to predict when and how big. And everyone's saying that Lismore and other places had worse floods than ever. If we look to only last year, 2021, in Germany, entire towns in northwestern Germany, now Belgium and Holland, went underwater. And German headlines called it a Jahrhundertflut, a hundred-year flood. It was actually predicted a week ahead, and scientists were onto it. And they were telling the government to act, to take mitigation. So this was an occasion when the flood could have been mitigated much better than it was, and perhaps ours too uh, could be better predicted as well. So the impacts of floods are on loss of lives, loss of livelihood, education and health. And likewise, that happens with COVID. The impacts of flood include gastro, uh, so waterborne disease, airborne disease, the crowding when people are in shelters together, uh, vectorborne diseases, mosquitoes. There's a lot, but I'm not going to talk about that today. So here's something that came up only uh, early in March, and that is that COVID-19 can produce a long syndrome, which can actually shrink the brain. This was published in Nature uh, from the, an Oxford group where they looked at uh, over 400 people before and after COVID. And they found that there was shrinkage in certain parts of the brain of grey matter to do with memory and mood, and especially to do with smell, the olfactory region. The equivalent defect was in about, was about 1% loss of brain volume. So uh, small but significant. However, we know as clinicians that people recover well uh, from COVID and they can recover in days, weeks or months. And we know the risk factors for getting long COVID include a prior history of EBV fatigue, uh, a prior history of diabetes mellitus and a high viral load. 15 studies were just reviewed and published again only in early March showing that long COVID could be halved in its incidence if you'd been previously vaccinated. So that's an important message. The Medical Research Future Fund of Australia in 2021 uh, set out to address some of the important questions. They're listed on this slide. And uh, st st uh, Stream 1 looked at the uh, long COVID effects of people positive for COVID-19 to try and improve the understanding of risk factors and better management. I'll keep going. So treatments for long COVID. They're being studied too, especially out of the UK, but other places as well. And statins and apixaban are at the front of the queue. Now, statins are interesting. We know they're anti-inflammatory. A torvastatin, for example, was studied and published last year in the BMJ, uh, an ICU-based study or an RCT, and it didn't show any benefit. So RCTs often show us things which are more negative than uh, speculative uh, observational studies. However, a systematic review of seven studies showed an almost 50% reduction uh, in mortality if a torvastatin, if a, a statin was used in hospital. So there's a difference between observational studies and RCTs, and we need to pay uh, uh, attention to that. 
Other treatments uh, include, uh, or an apixaban, it's an oral anticoagulant. I'm personally on it myself, uh, having had some TIAs, uh, and it, it's uh, being studied carefully for its anticoagulant effect in preventing the symptoms and signs of long COVID. Exercise and sleep, self-medication, drug-drug interactions. I'll come back to drug-drug interactions. I'm going to mention again pre-exposure prophylaxis. 2% of Australians have immunosuppression. That's 500,000 people. That's a lot. And those people who are essentially immunosenescent, old, or immunocompromised from uh, uh, cancer, chemotherapy, immunosuppression from congenital uh, and acquired uh, uh, chronic infection like HIV, all of those people could benefit before they even are exposed with a thing called Evusheld. It's not Evusheld, it's Evusheld. It's from AstraZeneca. It's given um, uh, as a, a single dose, a short infusion. It's a long-acting uh, antibody, uh, uh, and um, it's not a vaccine substitute, but in people who've been vaccinated and are immunosuppressed, they can still get COVID. And so they're, especially very immunosuppressed people, would benefit uh, from using this drug. Uh, for acute COVID, we've also got treatments. It's not my place today to talk about that. I'll just let you uh, read my slide. Um, but <clears throat> noting that uh, risk factors for severe acute COVID include diabetes, um, obesity, um, and, uh, and hypertension. And there are studies showing real benefit. And can I just point out that uh, in general practice, you can access a drug called molnupiravir, uh, which means simply Thor's hammer, smashing the virus. And you can access soon Paxlovid, which means peace and love. And it's actually more effective. So peace and love is more effective than Thor's hammer in managing COVID, uh, if you see what I mean. So um, the distribution for GPs and others of oral treatments by the Australian government is prioritised to the highest clinical need. People in rural communities, people in residential aged care facilities, Indigenous people, people living in disability centres. Now, I just show this to frighten you. Paxlovid is commonly an interacting drug with other drugs because it's a cytokine cytochrome cytochrome P450 inhibitor uh, and all sorts of drugs that treat enlarged prostate, angina, uh, blood pressure, mental health cholesterol, erectile dysfunction, all of them can interact uh, and Paxlovid is contraindicated uh, unless you can stop the other drug. And there's a big long list and the point of showing this is not for you to read the list but to see that you need to consider to consult an expert whether it's uh, an HIV specialist or whether it's a pharmacist or whether you download um, an app on your computer. Uh, you need to know how to manage the use of oral Paxlovid in primary care. Uh, the drug classes of particular concern are listed there. They're, they're, they're drugs that are prone to concentration-dependent toxicities, uh, antiarrhythmics, anticoagulants, immunosuppressants, anticonvulsants, etc. So there are so many contraindications that it's going to preclude the wide use of the drug. And if we're not using the drug as clinicians, we lack the clinical experience to use it again and more. So that's a problem. The National Medical Stockpile has a number of drugs uh, available, and I'll let you look at those there. The Australian guidelines are listed there too. So treatments with monoclonal antibodies for Omicron, the latest variant. 
acute COVID, what is still effective against Omicron? What is key about Omicron, the virus, is that it's got 50, 60 mutations compared with the original uh, Wuhan strain and 30 mutations in the spike protein and 13 mutations in the re receptor binding domain. Goodness, a massive difference. And they lead to immune evasion and to much greater transmission of the virus. So now that we've got BA2 raising its ugly head in 2022, it shows some differences, at least uh, a dozen differences with BA1. Uh, BA, it's stealth. Uh, it, I call it the British Airways stealth bomber because uh, it's hard to detect um, Omicron uh, from other uh, uh, variants because of the PCR uh, effect uh, is hidden uh, when you're trying to uh, compare, uh, say, a Delta variant with an Omicron. Now, an interesting paper just published in uh, March this year from a Japanese group uh, suggests uh, in the New England Journal uh, that uh, uh, citrovimab, which we've been using for a few months now, may be better for BA2 than BA1. So our treatment, which we've prepared to have lost for BA1, may now be uh, uh, effective again for BA2. That's still early research days, but it's published. What's become ineffective against Omicron is the Eli Lilly product, etasevimab with bamlavimab. And uh, that was only recommended for use in December 2021 um, for moderate to severe, uh, uh, for the treatment of moderate to severe or post-exposure prophylaxis of uh, high-risk children and adults. So I won't go on about that. I will go on about this idea of a reproduction number. The virus originally, the Wuhan strain, the ancestral strain, one person could, in a susceptible population, fully susceptible, infect two and a half. When it got to um, Delta, it could in, one person could infect five. When it got to Omicron, one could infect 10. And now BA2, BA.2, one could infect 13. So it's extraordinarily transmissible. And the hospitalizations as a result, even though it's clinically milder, on average, because there are so many people getting infected, there are some getting it severe and even more getting it severe than with Delta, even though Delta was more virulent. If we look back to, to Delta figures from the US, we know that children and teenagers and young adults have a very low risk of death from COVID. But once you get to your 30s, the risk increases fourfold, and in your 50s, it increases 25-fold. So this is a disease of older people, and we know that. So talking about um, a New England Journal paper from last year uh, on variants and vaccines, I wanted to emphasize that because we have new variants of concern uh, and they have increased transmissibility, uh, thankfully not virulence, the importance, the middle point there, the importance of efficient public health measures and vaccination programs increases. So we need to get those boosters in. And then the third point, the science prize winner from the Prime Minister for Australia for this year is Professor Eddie Holmes, a colleague from University of Sydney. And he makes the point that variants escaping immunity are inevitable. So they're coming. They've come already and they are coming too. Uh, and this year uh, we've seen um, um, with uh, treatment specifically for the prevention of uh, Omicron, Moderna and others have produced a new mRNA vaccine 
which is Omicron specific. It works well for Omicron, but perhaps not for different variants. So this is very challenging. So we're looking at, in the next couple of months, having Omicron specific or multivalent vaccines arriving soon, and whether we will use them as boosters uh, remains open to discussion, but a strong possibility. Uh, I've said already the number of mutations in Omicron. The neutralising antibodies uh, required to, for the uh, management of Omicron for its treatment and its prevention may be as many as 20-fold higher. It's 20-fold less protective for Omicron. Hybrid immunity is a really interesting concept. That means two things combined together. That's natural immunity and vaccine-induced immunity. And we know for some countries like South Africa and the UK, we've measured that perhaps 70% plus of the population have already had wild COVID infection. So they've got some natural immunity and a high proportion are already vaccinated too. There's a study in the UK which is plotting this, 150,000 people are checked every month for infection. So if we're going to prevent corona and there's going to be mutations, maybe we need a pan-coronavirus vaccine. And that may be the key to fighting the pandemic. A paper just published in the New England Journal discusses this. And Anthony Fauci has said, uh, the head of the um, um, the head of the uh, uh, US agency, um, uh, we must prepare for the next generation of coronaviruses with pandemic potential. So an interim statement on COVID vaccines was released by the WHO in March 2022. And it said many things, but it made the point that having previously said we don't need a booster, it probably do need one now. And given the widespread transmission of Omicron globally, every continent, 99% of COVID is currently Omicron or more. So the WHO is tracking the lineages under the umbrella of Omicron. Um, and a new variant may emerge before we have an updated vaccine and we could be in the Stuck again. So this is an ongoing challenge. And one of the points that WHO and the US are making is that we need to look at what we've done already with flu vaccine, um, a a flu vaccine uh, a production and an immunity. And there are valuable lessons because both flu and COVID are RNA vaccines, although they uh, uh, have many differences as well. They can actually be delivered concomitantly. And there's a study from uh, Novavax showing flu and COVID vaccines can be given simultaneously in two arms and perhaps given together in one arm. So that research is still ongoing. We're expecting to see it soon. Novavax was introduced into Australia in 2022 uh, for adults and it's picking up that one or two percent of people who were hesitant and didn't want an mRNA vaccine. So they're getting vaccinated. Curiously, even though it's a protein-based recombinant with a, a matrix M uh, pro, uh, matrix M as the uh, saponin as the adjuvant to make the immune response to the to the protein S um, much stronger. So even though uh, we expect fewer side effects because of the use of an adjuvant, the risk of uh, a local side effect leading to concern or to even a, a systemic side effect with fever is 2% of people uh, in the last two months have been having medical consultations after Novavax compared to 1% with other COVID vaccines. I think that's probably because it's early days and that 2% will quickly fall to 1% as we get used to using it. 
Um, and secondly, we're dealing with a more nervous population, the hesitants, the one or two percent who hadn't previously had a vaccine and were more concerned about what vaccines might do to them. So children face, as a paediatrician, I'm going to focus now for five, ten minutes on children. Children face a generation-defining disruption because of this pandemic and because of the measures we've taken more than the COVID virus itself. So research has shown that the indirect impacts of the public health measures taken, school closure, etc., may be even more detrimental to well-being of children than catching COVID. Professor Sharon Goldfeld uh, from the Murdoch uh, in Melbourne has published on this, and uh, I've worked with the president of the Royal College of Paediatrics uh, uh, in the UK, Professor Russell Viner, a, a former Australian. And the key, if you go to the fourth point, children and adolescents are experiencing adversity um, uh, and more so if they already had problems before COVID came along. And furthermore, uh, Goldfeld has noted that job losses and reduced income in parents is a risk factor for uh, uh, harsh parenting and maltreatment of children. But the job loss actually applies to the children. Their future job prospects by missing school are reduced and even their life expectancy is reduced as a consequence of having poorer job outcomes. So this is not uh, trivial. So the TGA in Australia approved last year Pfizer vaccine in teenagers and then in five to 11 year olds, and then this year in five, six to 11 year olds for Moderna. There are a number of issues that concern people, uh, parents and GPs, uh, myocarditis, long-term safety of an mRNA vaccine, how good is natural immunity, do we actually need vaccination of healthy young children under five, which is being proposed but hasn't been uh, decided upon? So Otagi has a number of recommendations. Uh, they're listed and summarised here. Uh, at the moment, it's from five years of age and above, um, and it's a two-day schedule using Comanati or using SpikeVax. Uh, as of 2022, SpikeVax being the Materna product. And... Um, Although there's a priority for using Comanati, the Pfizer product, um, uh, the other mRNA can now be used uh, from six years of age and above. Uh, and the focus is on indigenous kids, uh, children in remote communities, and children with the lists of hematological and immunocompromising conditions uh, on this slide. I'm not going to read it out. Uh, uh, not only uh, uh, immunosuppressed children uh, at real risk, but children with complex medical problems, especially neurological problems like cerebral palsy, are at much greater risk of severe COVID and death. So what have we done in Australia? Through the National Centre of Immunisation Research is a program called Ausvac Safety, a collaborative approach right across Australia, uh, has been looking at the safety of new vaccines like Novavax. And uh, they reported uh, in February, after the child program only started on the 10th of January, they were already reporting on the first 20,000 immunisations given to children uh, with day three safety surveys. Very impressive and rapid research. And if we go to the uh, second point, um, there's been some recent concern that uh, a court order in the United States has released Pfizer data on early uh, vaccination uh, receipt and safety in the US. Well, this is data that's over a year old and we know it all already. The TGA has reviewed it. There's nothing new. There's no new safety issue and it's old news. We have new news which is more relevant and more important from Australian data in 2022. Point three, COVID vaccination in children aged uh, five to 11 uh, is mostly with Pfizer, 
But before we started using it in January, we already had real-world experience on over 10 million children doubly vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine in the United States and with no serious uh, or concerning safety issue. So before we started vaccination, we knew about 10 million children in the United States being safely protected. So the, the, you all know that you give vaccination with Pfizer three weeks apart, but for children we're recommending eight weeks apart for two reasons. You get a stronger immunogenic response to the second dose with a larger gap, and importantly, you get less inflammation if there's an eight-week gap, and so you have a lower likelihood of a side effect like myocarditis uh, or, or other inflammatory side effects. So um, the uh, research by Ausvac Safety has shown that children aged 5 to 11 actually have fewer side effects following their first dose than teenagers. So that's really good. Uh, the, if we go to um, the fourth point, these common side effects are expected to occur. They're local or they're systemic with headache and fatigue. Uh, and they're mostly gone within three days. Uh, Australian data, uh, Nick Wood's quote at the last point, Australian data analysed to date are extremely reassuring and are in line with what has been observed for this group internationally. Myocarditis, two, word, two, two minutes on this. You know the symptoms, shortness of breath, fatigue, palpitations, chest pain, and it is reported in up to one in 10,000 teenage boys after the second dose of Pfizer or Moderna. One in 10,000 teenage boys after the second dose, less common in other settings with females, first dose, it's uh, younger or older. So there's guidance on the management, and if you go to um, whether or not you have an underlying cardiac condition, most pre-existing cardiac problems are not regarded as contraindications to vaccination. That's on the, the, the left of the slide and on the right, you can see that if there'd been recent within the last six months um, inflammatory cardiac disease, consult yourself as a GP or consult a cardiologist if you need extra help. Now here's a graph showing very starkly how the report of myocarditis is especially in older teenagers, 16, 18, uh, up to 20. And the timing is also extraordinary. It's especially after the second dose, and it's especially within one to four days. You can see that on the left-hand part of the slide. And if we look at males versus females, we see that uh, in 12 to 17-year-olds, the, the risk after dose one in females is 9.1 in the top row, and 66.7 after the second dose in males. So the Atagi advice is um, if you've experienced myocarditis, use a different vaccine next time. Uh, it's unlikely um, that it'll occur after the first dose, but it can. Um, and you can defer future doses of Pfizer COVID until the cause of the problem has been excluded and assessed by a cardiologist. Uh, Take-home messages are in the bottom half of this slide. Um, seek cardiology advice is the last thing if there is a case of myocarditis. Um, and the third point, mild cases can be treated with non-steroidals for symptomatic relief. And as I've said to parents who've consulted me, avoid high-intensity exercise uh, in, the, in the days after vaccination, because that's when the symptoms may occur. Vaccine hesitancy, uh, uh, just a couple of minutes on this. Uh, I've been uh, a proponent of explaining, explaining the safety and effectiveness of vaccines for over 30 years. And I take a narrative approach. I help people to understand in a personal kind of way. 
Information is important, but telling stories helps. Um, compassion and consultation is important, and a big part of that is just listening to what the concerns of the parent or the patient are. I like to point out that we have rights, but we also have responsibilities. We have individual rights and we have responsibilities to our family and our community. And decision aids can be very useful. I'm going to refer to some in the next slide. Our politicians can make a real difference. They can do great things for good. Um, uh, five years ago, we introduced uh, vaccination of pregnant women against pertussis, whooping cough, because of uh, a direct approach partly to Turnbull and Greg Hunt. Uh, I also like to point out the issue of clear and present danger. You know the Harrison Ford movie, or maybe you weren't born then. But clear and presentation, clear and present danger motivates people to get a vaccine. And I want to talk about another Harrison Ford, Ford movie, Blade Runner, in a minute. So there's a decision aid available uh, uh, for 5 to 15-year-olds, and it goes through five uh, issues listed on this slide. And, for, uh, and that's available from the National Centre, so that's National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance. And there's also one available from the Immunisation Coalition called Coracle that looks at your age and your sex and your risk of disease versus your risk of vaccination by way of um, complications or side effects. So healthcare providers are encouraged to use decision aids during their consultations. Couldn't do a lecture without mentioning Trump. Sorry if that bores you. Back in October, he had COVID, October 2020. And he got the best treatment available at the time, a monoclonal antibody called Ronaprev, a combination of casirivimab and imdevimab. And he had it quickly. He had six mils of each given in intravenously. And he also had um, treatment with uh, high-dose steroids and oxygen. And uh, he told his advisors, I'm going to get over this, and he did, and I'm going to then stand up and rip my white shirt open and reveal a Superman t-shirt. Uh, clearly he had steroid psychosis. Not that he didn't have a pre-existing uh, uh, problem with uh, his mental health, but uh, that's another story. Don't sue me. What about Trump and Ronaprieve? Well, it worked, but now we've got Omicron and the the new variant is not well protected by Ronaprieve. However, BA2, the second variant, may be better protected. What we do have right now is intravenous sotrovimab available from GSK in infusion clinics at hospitals and maybe potentially in aged care too. So uh, there are treatments coming. Uh, they're not experimental anywhere anymore because they've been gone through RCT and real world experience. But you know, Trump didn't inspire us, but someone who you might find inspiring or not, but interesting, um, is, uh, you might be able to see her face on there, is a certain Tasmanian senator. And her advice uh, as a politician to uh, her colleagues and the general public to promote vaccine uptake was be a goddamn bloody adult and put others before yourself, responsibilities and rights. Some of you may guess that this is the Archibald Prize from 2021. It's a 100-year-old man. People of age can have high quality of life and they can benefit from oral treatment with molnupiravir or IV treatment with citrovimab. Evusheld, I'll come back to that one more time. It's the AstraZeneca product for pre-exposure prophylaxis. It may even be effective as a treatment too, but that's, that's still being studied. It's a long-acting 
uh, antibody. There are 40,000 doses available in the national medical stock stockpile. About 2% of people are at risk. Did you know that 40% of admissions for COVID are in people who are immunosuppressed? You may need twice the standard dose intramuscularly because Omicron is somewhat immune evasive. So I want to now discuss the rise and the fall of Omicron um, and the Blade Runner effect. What actually happened with Omicron, because it spread so very fast, it actually went away quite fast as well. The light that shines twice as bright shines half as long. That was what Rutger Hauer's character uh, was described as. He was a replicant, uh, kind of uh, a robot. Um, so is it true? Well, actually, there's been of a tale. There's been a tale uh, because of two things. Uh, it's an apparent trail, not real, because as it spreads around the country, you see more cases in places that haven't had Omicron BA2 uh, or BA1. So the tail is a bit longer. And also because uh, vaccination is not completely protective against infection. So some people, despite vaccination, are getting infected. And I'll tell you more about that in a moment. So I don't have time to go into the detail, but there are 13 mutations in the Omicron S gene, which are rarely seen in other SARS-CoV viruses. If we drop to the final point, um, <clears throat> prior to the emergence of Omicron, those mutations would have been predicted to actually decrease the fitness of the virus. So contradictory, how did it become so transmissible? It's a bit of clever science. The proposal is that the mutations in several different clusters in the virus cooper cooperatively interact to mitigate their individual fitness decline cost and adaptively alter and increase the function of spike to make it bind better and inject better into the human cell. So I've just turned 60 and so um, I like to sometimes call myself Astra Boy because I had two doses of Astra in 2021. That's the blonde hair. It's grey now. Um, and I also had my booster at Christmas and I did have mild breakthrough Omicron, three days of respiratory symptoms. So vaccine is important for preventing severe disease, hospitalisation and death, not necessarily mild infection. So someone who's old, male and fat like me is helped by being vaccinated um, three times. The best immunity indeed from research in, published both in science and nature is hybrid, immune-induced plus na na native, native virus-induced, the two combined. But three doses of vaccine are very protective too. So the Immunisation Foundation of Australia began 10 years ago after a family lost their baby to whooping cough. And that's, that same family then interacted with uh, Malcolm Turnbull, as I've mentioned, are doing a program in April this year uh, called for World Immunisation Day. They're looking at vaccination and superheroes. And they're saying, dress up children, preschool and the like, and donate families. Uh, the World Vision, of course, and, uh, and uh, UNICEF are promoting it too. And they've got a facility called COVAX. It's international. It aims to procure vaccine to distribute it and deliver it into arms. Fantastic. Uh, and have you had a free vaccine? Put your hand up. Of course you have. So why don't you give back and pay forward? You can go to UNICEF. You can go to uh, Immunisation Coalition do Donation. Uh, it's on RACGP posters. If you go to Immunisation 
coalition donation, you can click on a, a link uh, to donate. So kids and babies can dress up as superheroes, boys and girls. Um, the uh, former Prime Minister of, of the UK has issued a letter uh, in March this year saying, why don't we quickly redistribute, redistribute, redirect over-ordered supplies in rich countries? Australia has done that ourselves with 25 million doses already, which is good. We, we can do better, but we've done well. Uh, but over 100 signatories said it's immoral and entirely self-defeating and an ethical, economic and epidemiological failure not to get vaccines to the people who need them. The letter urges world leaders to fund the next stages of vaccine development, treatment and testing and provide protective equipment too for healthcare workers. Current vaccines may not actually work against future, one, future variants of, of virus. So they promoting an immediate airlift of surplus over-ordered vaccines. We've ordered 130 million in Australia. We only need 60 million. As Gordon Brown, the former Prime Minister of the UK, has said, no one is safe anywhere until everyone is vaccinated everywhere. And he made that call to the G20, which includes Australia. We're running out of time, so I'll go quickly through this slide. The effectiveness of a third dose of an mRNA vaccine is very high. We go straight from the first line to the last red point. The vaccine effectiveness increased after a third dose, and it was highly effective in both the Delta period and the Omicron period in December, January this year. So the hospitalizations were prevented at, at a level of at least 90%. So that's quite impressive. I wanted to spend a minute on Novavax because it's so new. Um, and the Serum Institute of India has worked with the World Health Organization to uh, give an emergency use listing so it could be widely used in poor countries. So the, the Novavax vaccine has been pre-qualified because of its quality, safety and efficacy. Um, and now the COVAX facility I've mentioned already has, can uh, allocate and distribute vaccine to uh, low-income countries. Uh, the, the work is based on two very big um, phase three trials. And as of March 2022, the last point, ATAGI in Australia has said you can use the vaccine as a primary course or as a booster if another vaccine is contraindicated. An indication for children is likely to be coming in April, May. So that's uh, exciting and something to watch for. What about Omicron and beyond, as I conclude? Should we stop worrying about Omicron, the journalists are saying. Um, <clears throat> by uh, Christmas last year, Austra uh, Australia had 300,000 COVID cases, but by January 19th, four weeks, less than four weeks later, the number was 2 million. That's an impact of Omicron. It is so much more contagious and so much more transmissible. So um, borders are opening uh, in Australia in 2022. Flu and COVID variants are coming in and potentially going out as well. Um, if you're going to be traveling, um, it, if you're going to be traveling, it's important to be fully vaccinated and that's a minimum of two doses and three doses is a much better idea. It's much more protective. Are we gonna get other viral infections peaking this winter? Yes, we are. This April, um, this April, uh, autumn and winter, we're likely to get surges quite soon in RSV 
and in influenza. And if I had to predict, I'd say it will go RSV, flu, COVID. But, uh, you know, we can all be wrong. Um, so overseas travel, you'll need to take rats with you. Some countries require you to have a PCR on landing. And GPs can provide people with a bill of good health to allow them to travel because they want to see relatives they haven't seen in two years. Uh, coming to conclude, uh, again about children, the JCVI, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation in the UK, has said that uh, children can be vaccinated, especially if they have a chronic medical problem. Uh, if they're aged 5 to 11 uh, and they're healthy, the indication is non-urgent. So they're saying, well, some of them have had COVID already, some of them um, uh, are healthy and uh, you can have the vaccine, but no rush. You can get it from your GP. It doesn't need to be done th through a rushed school program. But high-risk kids are really important to get vaccinated. The Netherlands say that if you had a child with disease, you can wait three months to get your booster. Some people have called for vaccination to be mandated. I don't believe that to be the case. Don't have time to go into the details, but in another talk, I'd be happy to. What about daycare and preschool? They don't yet have a recommendation for COVID vaccination. The studies in the US are not yet supportive by way of safety and effectiveness. So we need more data. Um, and the studies specifically show that children between six months and, and 24 months do respond well to vaccination with uh, the um, <clears throat> Pfizer vaccine, but children who are aged three and four don't respond to the low dose vaccine nearly as well and require a third dose, which would be a bit impractical. So um, I don't think vaccines should be mandated in children. They should be carefully used. Is a new nasty variant coming? That's one of the motivations for getting vaccinated now for the nasty thing around the corner. Uh, does the current epidemiology justify vaccinating healthy young children? Uh, only just. Um, but if a nasty variant is coming, to be vaccinated is to, uh, is, is, is to have a stitch to save nine. Some of you might recognise this from the Archibald Prize. This is Professor Rainer McIntyre. And different experts will disagree on whether we should rapidly vaccinate healthy children or not. And if you want any other useful resources, there's the, um, the Melbourne Vaccine Education Centre, there's the Philadelphia Vaccine Education Centre, there's my own website called omega.org.au. And um, uh, Paul Offit, who's been in, who actually invented the rotavirus vaccine, uh, does a lot of really great education if you want to look that up. Frequently asked questions from the National Centre. Uh, there are those various facilities and uh, uh, I'd like to stop there and I'm sorry if I've gone on too long. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcasts where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.